Have you ever heard of anything called bumper sticker theology? Or, or uh, it, it might be uh, soundbite theology, but the, the idea is you see something that's short enough to fit on a bumper sticker, and maybe you see it in traffic. Uh, you might even see it on a billboard, but it's something that kind of is designed to get your attention, but very rarely is it enough information to give you a bigger picture of what's really accurate. Uh, these would be phrases like, God is my co-pilot. Have you ever seen that one on, on a bumper sticker? If you've ever driven the um, interstate 65 between Montgomery, Alabama and heading uh, north to, um, to Birmingham, or if you're heading south, you'll see this huge billboard that says, go to church or the devil is going to get you. Um, that was paid for by a man who owns that property and uh, he has passed, but his grandchildren have put the billboard back up. It's been cut down twice, uh, uh, but he keeps putting it back up. Another one that you might have seen is something like, what part of thou shalt not did you not understand? And then so, uh, uh, well, you know, the, these are interesting, but they ought to provoke a question in us. Now, are they biblically sound or do they just sound biblical? Because they don't always capture the true essence of what Scripture teaches. For example, uh, I've seen another uh, 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 bumper sticker. To the, uh, it's a response to the God is my co-pilot. If God is your co-pilot, then you better change places. Because God's not co-pilot of anything. He's the pilot, right? If there's anybody that's a co-pilot, well, we're passengers kind of like, you know. So anyway... Any of these can be taken too far or too much of a theology can be developed without really fleshing it out. And, and even something as innocent or seemingly innocent as saying Happy Mother's Day or Happy Father's Day has to be nuanced in today's world. There are a lot of young people who never knew their dad or the dads they have known have not been the ideal uh, kind of individual that they look up to. And so there is, and there's many very loving fathers that have already passed. And so this day is a day of sadness. It's a day to go visit a, uh, 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 a cemetery. It's a day to remember. And so there's just a lot more to what's happening, not only in scripture, but even in our lives to have it reduced down to just one phrase. Well, our text for today comes from Acts chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. And when we read it, you're going to hear something that would fit on a bumper sticker. And, uh, and we're going to flesh that out a little bit uh, uh, later in the, uh, in the lesson. Uh, let me just set the background because we're going to jump into the text mid-story. Um, a few weeks back, we talked about how Peter and John had healed a crippled beggar. Uh, who was in the temple. And he did so, uh, well, Peter did so with the power of Jesus, and he used that miracle as an opportunity to preach and teach to all those that were there about Jesus and also about the resurrection. Their emphasis on the resurrection brought them some conflict with the religious, religious leaders, and they were put in jail, and they were brought before the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish council, who said, you must not preach and teach in the name of this man any longer. Well, after the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira in the first part of Acts chapter 5 that we saw last week, 
they continued to serve in the city of Jerusalem. They were preaching, they were teaching, they were healing, they were casting out demons, people were coming to them. Their presence was so powerful, even people who, who, uh, upon whom Peter's shadow fell were healed. All of this in, in Acts chapter 5, uh, verses 12 and following. Well, that earned them another trip to jail. And while they were in jail, an angel came and freed them and gave them this command, go to the temple, go back to the temple and preach the message of life, which is the message of Jesus. So the next morning, kind of like a scene that you would see from the Keystone Cops, the temple guards go to the jail to get the, 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 the prisoners. They're not there. They run back and then they find them in the temple and they're running back and forth. And they know what's happening and it's just mass confusion. They grab the apostles. They bring them before the Sanhedrin again. And now we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 5, verse 27. They brought the apostles before the high council where the high priest confronted them. Didn't we tell you never again to teach in this man? He didn't even want to say the name of Jesus. This man's name, he demanded. Instead, you have filled all Jerusalem with your teaching about him, and you want to make us responsible for his death. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than man, or in this translation, any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on a cross. Then God put him in the place of honor at his right hand as prince and savior. He did this so that the people of Israel would repent of their sins and be forgiven. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit who is given by God to those who obey him. And then the, continue, the story continues and we have the uh, uh, introduction of Gamaliel and his advice to, uh, uh, to let things lie and if it's from God, it will uh, uh, work out. If it's not, it will die. But, but did you catch the phrase that would fit on a bumper sticker? We must obey God rather than man or human authorities. I, I mean, it sounds pretty straightforward. It's definitely biblical. But the question is, can we take it at face value or do we need to think through it just a little bit more? Now, in the original context, in Acts chapter 5, uh, the, the high priest has two accusations that he's leveling against the apostles. One, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and so you have not obeyed our command to not preach and teach in this man's name. But then secondly, not only have they taught the people about Jesus, but they have accused the council of being guilty of Jesus' death. And in response to those accusations, Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. The command from the angel was to go back and preach. The command from God and the Holy Spirit in the early part of the book of Acts was to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then uh, uh, in other places. The command from the religious leaders was stop preaching. So Peter says, we have to keep preaching. As Peter puts this challenge in these kinds of terms, he's kind of stepping into a long history of Israel, uh, uh, Israel's leaders, men and women in Israel's history, 
that who that chose to bravely stand up against religious leaders and political leaders to stand up for God. Um, two examples from the book of Daniel come to mind. You've got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, they were thrown into this blazing furnace. The command was, you shall worship this golden statue, or if you're familiar with Veggie Tales, this chocolate rabbit, right? Um, you shall worship this statue and only this statue, and they refused into the fiery furnace. And then later, King Darius, uh, through the manipulation of his henchmen, or the ones around him, said that the only person to whom you could pray was King Darius himself. Daniel refused to stop praying. He kept praying to God, and he got thrown into the lion's den. Both of those show an obedience to God above and beyond whatever the political uh, uh, governmental authorities might be saying. Now, Peter isn't interested in looking for ways to disobey the council, but rather he feels an obligation to follow the God who has called him, the God of Jesus, the God of all of his people. The council is an important authority, but in Peter's mind, the council is clearly subordinate to God. Now, Christians throughout centuries and perhaps more recent centuries have used Peter's response, we should obey God rather than men, as a answer when faced with the need to practice what's called civil disobedience. When we feel like the government is doing things that are completely contrary to what scripture teaches. The, the problem is there's a tension in scripture that we have to recognize that goes beyond just a bumper sticker. In Romans chapter 13, and then Peter himself in 1 Peter chapter 2, both teach, both Peter and Paul, that Christians are to live in subjection to human authorities. Submit yourselves to the authorities. Obey them and pay taxes to them. But that doesn't mean we should always obey every law that a government makes. And so the challenge for us is how do we know when it's appropriate to obey the laws and submit or when we should pull out the trump card, the God card, and say we're going to follow God rather than man. You know, I think it's important to understand that when, especially for, for, for Paul and Romans, uh, there was this moment in Rome's history that the early church was in, home, uh, in Rome where it looked like things had a possibility of moving forward. Remember that the Jews were expelled from, from Rome by, uh, uh, by an emperor. Well, Nero came in and he said, you know, that, that guy, we're, he's, he's gone and dead. Literally, he was killed. And so we're going to bring in some new laws and you guys can all come back. And it seemed like there was an opportunity for some building. And in that kind of context is when Paul writes the book of Romans. And, and so there's a possibility that Paul was feeling the possibility of uh, uh, a little optimism. And maybe this government might move in a good direction. But that wasn't the case for Peter. And I think we would all agree that when governments cease to function for the good of the people, however that's defined, 
when they cease to function for the good of the people, then Christians, either individually or collectively as congregations, will have to decide whether they should obey the laws of the land or the laws of God. But it's not easy. It's not cut and dried. And there isn't going to be necessarily wide agreement. And so let me suggest three principles that will help us kind of think through this and maybe end up not with answers, but at least a better understanding of how we can flesh out this idea of obeying God rather than instead of obeying human authorities. The first principle is the default. And this is the base where we should begin. Christians are to submit to the law of the land even when we think it's unreasonable. Many times it might be, in our perception, unjust, or it definitely could be inconvenient. There are a lot of things that we might determine to be extremely inconvenient, inconsiderate, unreasonable, and sometimes flat out unjust. Our tax payments to the IRS might be one of those things. Okay? I know of very few people who write that check to, uh, uh, to Uncle Sam uh, with a smile on their face and with joy in their heart. When you talk about cheerful giving, that's not the kind of giving that we give to the government, right? They are snatching it out of closed fists and prying our fists open to get what they want. But you know, Paul tells the Christians in Rome to pay their taxes to Rome. This is Rome. This is Rome. And what were those taxes used for in Rome's day? Wars of aggression. They wanted to consolidate their position in the ancient world. Might have been to fund the emperor's parties. It was probably used to fund, eventually, the persecution of Christians. But Paul doesn't say, just give when you think. Or he doesn't say, if they're doing good, give them taxes or give them their due. He says, pay your taxes. And so I think the default for all of us should be that we begin with this understanding that the authorities in place are there to provide structure and order and the best case scenario provide for the good of the people. Secondly, and this is where there are exceptions, Christians must be prepared to break the law of the land when it clearly contradicts God's law. When it clearly contradicts God's law. Now this doesn't mean breaking the law over what we would consider a ridiculous speed limit or refusing to pay an unreasonable tax or an unreasonable amount for a speeding ticket. It would definitely not include bombing abortion clinics, a thing of our history, fortunately, past. There are Christians in many countries that are being persecuted because they are determined to truly obey God rather than their human authorities. And we think of any number of different countries, uh, especially the communist countries, where in order to be a faithful Christian, you have to disobey the government. 
And we might find ourselves more and more in that situation as our world changes. It's hard to know. But I think it's important that this is the exception. This is the rarity. And that Paul always searched long and hard to find the wisest way to use the most discernment possible to come up with a response on how to avoid clashes with the authorities. Over and over, he instructed his his disciples, uh, Titus and, and Timothy, as much as it is possible, live at peace. Pray for your leaders so that there will be peace among the land. Back in the 90s, <clears throat> back in the 90s, I would make regular preaching trips to Cuba, uh, sometimes for, for two weeks uh, at a time. Uh, and, and I was working with one particular congregation, but throughout the island. And um, what they recommended and which I followed was to give them my itinerary, to give them my uh, information. And then they would apply for a religious visa that the Cuban government, the communist government of Cuba would grant that gave me authority to preach, teach, baptize, do anything that would be considered the role of a religious leader. And of the, I think, 11 trips that I made to Cuba, I went on 10 of them with a religious visa. Now, the Cuban government decided who gets the visa and how many visas there are going to be in the island. They didn't want the island overrun with a thousand U.S. preachers at any one particular time. So they controlled that access to their island. They were the ones in charge. We went through the process. Whenever I got there, I always had a a bag of goodies that we gave to members and to family members of of a toothpaste, a soap, uh, a toothbrush, and took it to the local leaders and said, thank you for letting us be here. And they would always let me know that they knew where I was and where I had been. And yeah, we heard you were over here visiting these people on this side of the town and this and the other. And so it was just their little game, right? But they gave me free access to preach, teach, and do everything. Now, I had a friend who said, you know what? We're going to obey God rather than man. They don't have a right to make those kinds of limitations. They don't have a right to make those kinds of laws. And so we're going to go and we're just going to preach. So they would go into Cuba from a third country and they would just begin preaching and teaching. Well, this one friend of mine did that. Within a matter of days, he was placed under house arrest. He was in his house with a guard, told he could not leave until it was time for his ticket, his return ticket. And then he was escorted to the airport and he got a prohibition that he could never enter Cuba again. Now, it was that a wise decision. I don't know. That was the decision he made and what he felt comfortable doing. I chose a different path, and what it has enabled was the ongoing preaching and teaching and an ongoing ministry in Cuba. So that leads us to our third point. The first, the default, and the vast majority of the time, we should submit. The few exceptions, we must be prepared to break the law if necessary. And the third principle is that we must not condemn or attack other Christians who might handle situations differently. And this is where all of us operate all the time. The Bible leaves quite a lot of room for disagreement and discernment among people who follow God on a number of different issues. 
There are situations where because of our understanding and our reading of Scripture, we're going to end up with a different conclusion than some other people when they read the Scriptures and come to their conclusions. And it's not as simple as I have God's law and you are simply following man's law. It's much more nuanced. And so even in Romans chapter 13, in Romans chapter 12, he spends all of this time saying, do not conform to this world. Renew yourselves and be converted and be transformed. He says, love one another with sincere love. Be devoted to one another. Care for one another. And then he says, and submit to the government. Don't be transformed to the world, but submit to the government in Romans 13. So submitting to the government is not, in Paul's mind, being transformed or conformed to the world. And that's a distinction I think that we sometimes miss because Paul is very clear. And then he ends up chapter 14 saying, and if you come to different opinions on matters, live with one another. Love one another. Understand that we don't all see the same thing the same way. And so there is this need for us to accept, and that's what he says in chapter 15, accept one another, welcome one another, even if we don't see eye to eye on exactly what God's commands are, exactly what it might be in terms of human traditions or socially cultural norms or even what the governmental authorities do. Our actions overall should come from a desire to act towards peace and mutual edification. Some of you might have heard or will remember the name uh, Rick Barry. Uh, Rick Barry was an NBA Hall of Famer who has the eighth highest free throw percentage in NBA history. 89.3%. 89.3%. Now, Stephen Curry, Stephen, Steph, has the highest. He's number one. And his percentage is 90.6, only 1.3 or 1.3% more. So Rick Barry, Hall of Famer, 89.3% of the time, he's standing at the free throw line, he's going to make it. But that's not what he's known for. He's known for his style and how he makes the free throws. He used the underhand shot that some people call the granny shot, where he would, and you, you might remember seeing him, he would stand at the line and bend down and throw it up from between his legs. Okay? Does that ring a bell? Yeah, yeah. Everybody remembers laughing at that dude. <laughs> now, they asked him why he did it, and he says, well, I, I, I make more baskets that way. <laughs> they asked a physics professor to chime in. Sure enough, they said because of the angle of where you're throwing the shot, the natural backspin when you throw it gives you a high percentage of making the basket. Now, a name that you're much more familiar with, Wilt Chamberlain. Okay, You know, he has the record for number of points scored in any one single game. A hundred points in one game. A hundred points. Kobe came up to, I think, 81 in one game. In that one game, he also had another achievement. You see, Will Chamberman was a horrific free throw. He was worse than Shaq. 
His lifetime percentage of free throws was 54%. Almost one out of one he was going to miss. But on the day he scored his 100, his 100 points, he used the granny style to throw the free throws and made 28 out of 32. But he didn't do it again. Well, we could spend all day arguing whether that's the best way to make free throws. The players are going to choose what they feel is most comfortable. Even if it doesn't give them more points, at least they look cool when they're losing. And I think at the end of the day, there are individuals within even our congregation with whom we're going to disagree. And I can be firmly convinced that this is the way you should do it. And I have the science and I have the statistics. And at the end of the day, everyone has to decide how they read scripture and understand and then how we read scripture and understand as a congregation. There has to be some room for openness, differences of thought and an opportunity to continue loving one another, even if it seems as simple as obey God rather than man. 